Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT G-O-A-T Acronym Stands for Greatest of All Time As in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner They're my fave Dad You're the GOAT You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Adopt U.S. Kids and the Ad Council So what do you want to talk about that the internet you don't mind them hearing about? I don't know. Honestly, I'm good with just like starting with fuck Oprah and like welcome to Chainsaw History because that's how I feel today. You're just in a fuck Oprah kind of a mood. I'm just in a fuck Oprah kind of mood. You know, I've never been in a fuck Oprah kind of a mood. <laughs> I mean, you know, or how about a Oprah fuck off kind of a mood? Yeah, I just remember when I worked at that bookstore in college, I just witnessed the power of Oprah when she would Jeez, when so. she had her book club and then all the wine moms would empty the shelves of whatever she recommended mm-hmm. or talked about. Yeah, I know, and that's that's how we got we all know about um Jillian Flynn and that's great. But Oprah sucks. Fuck Oprah. Sure. <laughs> so, wait, wait, what wait. What the hell? Where where are we? We're in our new home. So, yeah, welcome to season two of Chainsaw History, where we're actually taking it slightly seriously. This is the show where we take respected foundational figures in history and ruin them for you forever. Like Oprah? Like Oprah. (laughs) Oh, are we going to do Oprah one day? Probably, just because I hate her so much. I'm your host, Jamie Chambers, and this is my sister, Bambi. Hello. Uh, real quick, just know we are a comedy podcast. I'm not a historian. I'm just a guy who reads a lot and swears even more. Oh, I'm, I'm just here for the lulls. Oh, you'll get some of those today. <laughs> um, if you go to ChainsawHistory.com, you can hear our entire back catalog. Uh, check out paid subscription options that include bonus content and other new exciting stuff. One day, maybe even merch. But first things first, um, let's put in a content warning. This is the first time we've actually done this, despite some of the nasty shit we've talked about in the past in season one. But I think it's important for everybody to know going in, we will be discussing topics including sexual violence and abortion. And if that's not your thing, it's totally cool. If you want to skip this one, we'll be in two weeks, we'll be back to a a more traditional piece of shit. (laughs) So far, yeah. Oh. So, So, um, what you're telling me is I just need to buckle up? Yeah. So, let's let's start with a question. Have you ever known of a man, sorry, have you ever heard of a man known to history as Sir Matthew Hale? Sounds vaguely familiar. Vaguely. It is because I'm sure you heard me ranting about this sometime last year. It's the reason why I chose this topic. So it's not surprising if you haven't heard of him, or at least doesn't come to the front of your mind, because this guy's been dead for 347 years. <clears throat> so I'll let me ask you a different question. Do you know any um, Americans who have a uterus? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I'm like 50 like per- 51%. roughly 51% of them. <laughs> so you might remember a little case ruled on last year by the United States Supreme Court. Oh. Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. You do want me to start breaking things, don't you? 
for those who don't know, it was a case that made its way up to the high court from the enlightened state of Mississippi, who had been passing laws restricting abortion since 2018 in a very specific attempt to get the now conservative-leaning court to overturn Roe versus Wade. And it worked. Motherfuckers. Despite assurances during their Senate confirmation hearings that they considered Roe settled law, Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett eagerly voted with their other conservative judges to strip the legal rights from about half the U.S. population. You remember that, right? Oh, uh, oh I remember. I remember quite vividly. I woke up one day not having the as many rights as I did the day before. Yeah, suddenly you found the... And it pissed me the fuck off. It's about states' rights. States have more rights than you. So corpses have more rights than me. This is a history podcast, not politics or recent events. So we won't be talking about any of the above shitty judges. Our subject today, once again, died. (laughs) The guy we're talking about today has been dead for almost 350 years. And and you might ask, what the fuck does a guy who was born just after the reign of Queen Elizabeth the first have any say in the reproductive rights of women in the 21st century? Yeah, they just shouldn't. Yeah, Yeah. Really good fucking question. I mean, you know what? they, They also used to, you know... Burn witches at the stake or just hang them or... You know what? <gasps> We're going to be talking about some of I'm sure today. we are. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. For part two. Um, in, so in his majority opinion for the high court made official on June 24th, 2022, Justice Alito claimed that the only reason the Roe case was upheld in the 90s, and that was a, in a, a challenge known as Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that, that all they could do is uphold Roe since the court is supposed to follow prior decisions in most instances. It's a, it's a legal precept called stare decisis. The idea that in most cases you follow precedent. That's the sort of the foundation of all law. So what he's saying is, well, Roe was r- r- voted on and because this court at the time was split, all they could really do is just sort of say, oh, well, we'll hold on for Roe now and wait until we have a better chance to get rid of it later. And he also makes the argument that the earlier court was incorrect. He's saying that Roe was a bad ruling because it didn't take into account enough history and legal precedent. Alito essentially argues that because women's reproductive rights and rights in general were restricted for so long, it was not the court's place to overturn centuries of common and statutory laws with Roe. Okay, so, I mean, my math isn't great, but 300 years ago, isn't that still before America? Yes, so we're not even like going by the laws of this country, but by a previous one. Yes. Yeah, so. Oh fuck him right, so hard. So, so just listen. So so hard. But we're just getting started. Oh god. So this is so Alito writes. This is in the majority opinion published last year that the, the you know that groundbreaking the first time civil rights have ever been rolled back in the history of our country. So quoting this decision, this is Justice Alito writing. We begin with the common law, under which abortion was a crime at least after quickening, i.e. the first felt movement of the fetus in the womb, which usually occurs between the 16th and 18th week of pregnancy. Two treatises by Sir Matthew Hale described abortion of a quick child who died in the womb as a great crime and a great misprison. Unquote. Just last year. So, okay, so why does a 300-year-old dead motherfucker... Get well, any goddamn say. That's a very important question. And that's basically the oh whole point body. of what we're going to be talking about here. So, but there, 300 but, years ago, they didn't even know about germs. But it's sort of like, you know, understanding that we started as 
our country started as British colonies in Britain. So the, the common law of England was the basis for modern, for even modern American law. But you're about to see. So we'll, we'll let me keep going because this is this is just we're going to scratch the surface here. we only had germ theory for yeah. like 150 years. Yeah. Louis Pasteur, you know, 19th century. So, so Alito goes on to explain that Hale and the other great legal minds of their day ruled that a doctor who performed an abortion that caused the death of the patient would be treated differently than if said doctor performed any other kind of medical procedure. So in other words, sort of the idea is you treat a doctor who kills a patient doing an abortion differently. So if like a doctor tried to take out your appendix and you died on the table, the doctor wouldn't be charged with murder because they were trying to save your life, but it just didn't work out. But if he, if, but if he gave you an abortion drug that killed you, that would be treated potentially as a crime. So that's, that's kind of Alito's reasoning here of that. That automatically means abortions are categorized differently than other medical procedures in his view. So quote, a physician performing an abortion would be guilty of a crime precisely because his aim was an unlawful one, unquote. So in the opinion that stripped basic rights from roughly 167 million people, Justice Alito cited Sir Matthew Hale no less than eight times, along with some other legal figures of that same era. We're talking the 17th century England. I'm so, I'm going to throw up. The thoughts and legal opinions of this dead guy, Sir Matthew Hale, apparently hold such tremendous weight that they've begun to undo civil rights established in America in the 20th century. And now they're being rolled back, citing this dude, Matthew Hale. So who the hell was this guy, and why should we accept anything he has to say? We just should Well, we shouldn't. I mean, end we, the, we should just end the show right there because it's, it's patently obvious. However, we're going to do the... We're going to... We're going to have to talk about this asshole because, unfortunately, my rights were snatched away. Do you want to know how many fucking men have said, well, are you going to have any more kids? No. Well, then why do you care? Well, because there's still a possibility I could get pregnant and possibly die from it. Well, regardless of that, then then why are uh, only old white men the ones making these laws in the first place? Your argument has just defeated itself. Shut the fuck up. All right. So now let's learn who this guy, uh, Matthew Hale is and were actually was because he's been dead longer than America's been a thing. Matthew Hale arrived bloody and screaming out of a woman's vagina on November 1st, 1609 in Gloucestershire, England. And I wish col- he had been an abortion. Yeah, well, you're going to hear that this is, <laughs> once again, this is another one of those people. Is that why he wants to make it illegal? Because his parents were full of regret. This is another one of these figures that will be, that will be complicated. I'm, I'm so sad. So... Um, so we're going by basically, this guy died in the late 1600s, and this biography was is just an absolute blowjob written only about five years after he died by this fawning admirer. Quote, he was descended rather from a good than a noble family. And yet what was wanting in the insignificant titles of high birth and noble blood was more than made up in the true worth of his ancestors. Unquote. So, in other words, he his family was nouveau riche, not blue-blooded. He had no nobility, but money. His grandfather, Robert Hale, had made quite the name for himself in the garment business and had built up a fortune of more than 10,000 pounds. Uh, and, like, I kind of went to try to figure out what that would be in today money. Somewhere in the millions of dollars. Like, not, like, billionaire money, but still... Nice, Really well set up, you know. You're comfortable. You're in the rich club. So that was divided up between his five children and one of them also named Robert Hale. So Robert Hale, the, the, the guy who made all the money, the grandfather, and then Robert Hale, the father. 
Young Bob did not enter the family business of making clothes, but instead turned to the legal profession. And Bob was also a devout Christian who, amazingly enough, attempted to practice what he preached. So ultimately, you know, this'll, this is a, a good strike in this guy Bob's favor. He decided he could not in good conscience remain a barrister because, and this is going to shock you, standard practice of law involved lies and deception. Yeah. Well, like, you know, you know lawyers like, lying. Like they do now. Yeah. Uh, specifically, what he wrote about that bothered him was a practice called giving color in pleadings. And basically that was about property stuff, inheritance. And it was like rich assholes could basically petition a judge over matters of law without needing to worry about pesky facts. So we could literally say, well, I am Lord so-and-so and I have this claim, this property, which makes my word better than some asshole. And so regardless of the facts, the judge is supposed to rule in the, the, Lord's, the, favor. the Lord's favor. And, uh, and Bob Hale felt like, well, no, the facts should always matter. The truth actually is important. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of I bullshit. Agree. The, and since, the, and since he the was, truth and the facts and again, are important. He had some money, but he wasn't he wasn't a lord. So you can sort of see how he felt about that. Now, how big a deal this really was is kind of up to debate because he was able to live off of his and his wife's inherited income quite comfortably. It wasn't like quitting his job was that big of a burden on him. And also, he wrote in his will that his son should follow in his legal footsteps. So if he really be, hated being a lawyer that much, why... Yeah, why, you, why and, do you want... And also, when you dude. understand how young he died, too. So this is something he thought about when his kid was, like, born. Yeah, I want him to be a Nepotism. lawyer. Yeah. So Robert Hale Jr. was known for his Christian charity, as it seems he really took Jesus' instruction to heart about caring for the poor. So he was known, like, had a reputation for being more generous than his neighbors by, like, an order of magnitude. And he also refused benefits from his local parish so those alms could be given instead to the people who actually needed them. So this guy seemed pretty solid in terms of, like, wanting to use his money and privilege to help some people. We don't know much about her other than she was from a wealthy and established family that came over to England with William the Conqueror. But she died when little Matt was only three years old, and then his father died only two years later. So Matthew Hill was an orphan at age five. Okay. And his dad literally had already provisioned for him at this point, yeah, this kid should be a lawyer. Even though I quit because it was immoral. So it's kind of weird. and it, But weirdly enough, sets up the entire rest of this guy's story you're about to hear. So Matthew Hale's mother was Joanna Points. We don't know much about her other than she was from a wealthy and established family that came over to England with William the Conqueror. But she died when little Matt was only three years old. His father died only two years later, making Matthew, who was an only child, was an orphan at age five. Okay. But wealthy. Yeah. Very wealthy. Well, some, you know, you definitely got some money. Okay. Now, if Bob Hale had kept working as a hoity-toity lawyer, had been a little less generous to the local poor, Matt, Matt might have been set up for life as like a trust fund kid. But much of the family fortune was gone, leaving only 100 pounds per year minus 20 pounds per year to be given to the poor of their local district in Gloucestershire. Okay. So you can't exactly convert this, but the best estimate I could find, that'd be about somewhere around like 20 grand a year in terms of like what his support would be. Okay, so life. it's like you have a little bit of Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly, income, a, it's certainly a nice you, you still start. need to be a lawyer. Right, you still need, a, you would need a job in order to like be well set up. You know who else needs a job? Uh, <laughs> Me. But we yeah, we know what time it is. Oh, this is the part where we like get advertisements? Uh, Yay, okay. And now we're going to sell you stuff. Do you know what this is? Uh, 
on lots of people, that sound says it's morning again with a good day ahead. But of course, that doesn't mean every morning. For now and then, most all of us wake up feeling dull and logy because we need a laxative. And that's when another sound is so welcome. Yes, that's the sparkling sound of sal hepatica in a glass of water. Sal hepatica. Unlike slow-acting laxatives, a sparkling glass of sal hepatica, when you get up, brings quick, gentle relief, usually within an hour. That means you don't have to feel dull and logy all day, waiting until night to take the laxative you needed in the morning. And if at the same time you're troubled with excess gastric acidity, sal hepatica helps sweeten your stomach. So keep a bottle of sal hepatica handy. Then any time you need a laxative, morning, noon, or night, see how much faster you feel better thanks to gentle, speedy sal hepatica. And we're back. And we're back, and we're talking about Matthew Hale, little orphan, getting a roughly about 20 grand a year uh, at five years old for his care and support. Now, apparently the Hale side of the family uh, was not particularly interested in little orphan Maddie because two, only two relatives from his mother's side fought over custody. And ultimately, it was a cousin named Anthony Kingsgut that took over charge of the little boy and saw to his education as laid out by dead Bob. Okay. So, I think the next sentence... Dead, dead Bob. Dead, dead Bob. <laughs> so, we got dead Robert, grandfather, dead Robert, father, and now Matthew is starting off. Uh, so, I think this next sentence from his biography really explains who Matthew Hill was and how he saw the world. This is, again, from that fawning biography written five years after he died. Quote, great care was taken to his education, and his guardian intended to breed him to be a divine, and being inclined to the way of those then called Puritans, put him to some schools that were taught by those of that party, and into the seventeenth year of his age sent him to Magdalen Hall in Oxford, where Obadiah Sedgwick was his tutor. Unquote. That's just... Okay. So what the author is saying is that Matt's cousin stepfather intended for the kid to become a Puritan preacher. That was a, he didn't he didn't go for oh. the lawyer thing. He's like, no, we're going to raise you to be a, oh, Puritan. the so most <laughs> uptight religious guy in the world. Oh, oh, this is where witch trials come in. I see now. And uh, when Matt was seventeen, he was shipped off to Oxford to be taught by this guy named Obadiah Sedgwick, who is not in fact an instructor at Hogwarts. <laughs> Uh, he actually was a very influential uh, Puritan preacher of the day. So, like, imagine the dude with the biggest, tightest buckle on his hat. Well, you know, they it's they have to keep their thoughts buckled up yeah, as well yeah, as their pants. Exactly. What would, <laughs> and what, their shoes. What would Obadiah Sedgwick have taught at Hogwarts? Oh, uh, God. Transphobia. <laughs> I never... Moving right along. Um... So Matt's, so Matt's entire early life was religious education focused on piety, faith, obedience, chastity, and other things that are lame and not very fun. Don't touch yourself, children. Yep. And you know what? I don't think it was very good for him. Probably not. So. Being pent up all your life really makes you just kind of a terrible person. I mean, as you know, the temptations of our Lord Satan lurk around every corner. <laughs> and something tried to lure our young hero off the pure and righteous path. Can you guess what it dark was force was uh, was coming for his soul? A vagina? No, 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 no. <laughs> he does. Now, here's one thing I will say. I'm breaking out of my, my script for a second. Because his biographer doesn't even really mention it. It's not important. Matthew Hill was married twice and has, like, ten children by his first wife. I think he was... Pretty much too old to be making babies by the time he got his remarried later. But he had ten kids. He was married 
he gets married sometime as an adult in this story, but his biographer basically didn't mention it. It's only other sources that revealed that. So you won't hear me talk about her because he certainly didn't care enough. The biographer didn't think she was relevant or his children were relevant to his story at all. So he does get married at some point, but once again, this is all about duty and being a good Christian okay. and all that. And I'm sure he, they, he had sex under the Christmas tree once a year or whatever. I don't know. But that's no, not a vagina. The theater. Oh, God. So as a teenage boy suddenly exposed to popular entertainment, young Matthew got so into seeing plays and hanging out with actors that he started skipping class and almost flunked out. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Going, going, going to the theater's yeah, right. The, yeah. I mean, it really would be like a guy who like goes to the movies all the time these yeah. days and gets really, really into it. But like he, every nerd, but I know. then when he reached the precipice of screwing up his education, he's suddenly like, wait a second. He decided that the theater was not only a complete waste of his valuable time and it filled his head with, quote, images of things that they were at best unprofitable, if not hurtful to him, unquote. So, so okay. he already knew he was going to be planning to move to London after he gets out of Oxford, a city filled with evil theaters and plays. So he, he knew that in order to just set his life straight, he had to make a vow that he would never see a play again for the rest of his life. And he didn't. Uh-huh. He's 17. <laughs> okay. This is the lo- person we're Whatever, loser. <laughs> and you're going to see this theme. Oh, re- sit down. In his life story, you're going to see this recurring thing where it's like, he does something that he decides is a bad idea or a sin, and then he overcorrects as hard as you possibly can. So his other interests as a young man were wearing the finest clothes and participating in gentleman's sports, such as fencing and shooting. And of course, you know, his grandfather was a famous clothes dude, so it makes sense. He's, he is wearing the finest threads, and he's got the money to, to have a good, decent outfit. The biography tells us that Matt was so good with a sword that he was routinely beating his instructors. He tells a weird story about one fencing teacher who rented a house that Matt owned. So yeah, seems like he's doing okay. Like he literally was renting a house out to one of these guys teaching him how to use a sword. And the teacher swore, he's like, he's like, Matthew, you are better than me. He's like, the, the, the student is now better than the master. Nothing more I can teach you. And according to the story, Matt felt like the guy was just flattering him. So Matt offered to give his teacher the house he lived in if the guy could even land a single blow on his head. So in other words, it's like, okay, you, and he's like, you rent this house from me and you're telling me that I'm better than you. So let's put that to the test. If you can t- do this. And so according to the story, he knew that the, that the teacher was just talking some shit mm-hmm. and that he would, that, and so this is the way the quote goes from the biography quote. So after a little engagement, his master being really superior to him, hit him on the head and perform, and he performed his promise for he gave him the house freely and was not unwilling at that rate to learn so early to distinguish flattery from plain and simple truth, unquote. So I love how this story is presented as if Hale was just being humble. When I bet you dollars to donuts, it went more like this. He's like, forsooth, verily I am so keen with the blade that if thou canst strike me even once, I shall give thy bitch ass a house. <laughs> so it's like, he thought he was You're all, he thought man. he was hot shit. He was like, I'll bet you this house. You can't. Do-. And then this guy just owns him. So instead he reframes it. He's like, this was a, a lesson in humility, you know, that I, that I crafted myself. This was all according to plan. I wanted to give away this house. It's like, I know I'm detecting bullshit from 400 years ago. Yeah, it's like, sorry, buddy. I, good luck selling that story. Anyway, 
The biography goes on to tell us that Hale was so devoted to his tutor Sedgwick and his hatred of Catholics that he signed up to go fight in the Low Countries for the Prince of Orange's army, a.k.a. King Billy, the man who would one day co-rule England, Scotland, and Ireland with his wife Mary after overthrowing the Catholic King James II. So, instead of, but instead of going off to die as a foot soldier in the Game of Thrones, he got sued by some guy named mm-hmm. Sir William Whitmore for a portion of his estate. So suddenly it's like he was literally about ready to put a spear in my hand. I'm gonna ready. I'm getting ready to go. Want to kill some Catholics? The biographer says that his cousin's stepfather was not up to the challenge of dealing with this. So a Matt set aside his plans and went to London to settle the matter. From there, some guy named Glanville helped fulfill the wish that was in his father's will, and he talked Matt into giving up his dreams of glory in battle in the name of Protestant Jesus, and instead to study to become an attorney. Oh. Setting us up for the rest of this, ins- this, this so it would have just been better for no, him he, to go die. In a he could have just kind of fucking piked to the chest, you know, uh. shot with an English longbow. See, I'm typically against wars. Musket but fire, you know. To the I would face. have been real grateful for this guy not to be around. So, on November eighth, sixteen twenty nine, barely twenty years old, Matt was admitted to the Lincoln's Inn. So in 17th century, there were four inns of court in London, sort of like the fancy law schools of their day, places for legal education and training for people entering the profession. An admittance to, an admittance to Lincoln's Inn was quite the feather in his cap. He threw himself into his studies and, according to his biographer, worked at it for 16 hours a day. Sounds fun. Yeah, dude had no life. During this time, he rejected his fancy pants clothes and adopted a simple Puritan style of dress that he would maintain for the rest of his life. Oh, he sounds real fun. Now, during this time, there was also some sad accident with a friend involving alcohol. And the the biography was not clear exactly what happened, but it was bad enough where Matt made a vow, once again, to never drink for the rest of his life. And according to everyone, stuck to his guns even when there was intense social pressure. So, already not going to the theater, dressing... Dressing down, uh, never so drinking. So he's drab, and he sucks, and he's lame. Yeah. He, d- he decided his life would focus entirely on his faith and the law. So, and for oh, th- Jesus. For 36 years, <laughs> he, and for 36 years, he never missed a single church service on Sunday. Oh, yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure. So Matt was so uptight, he created a daily schedule to organize his time. Oh, God. Now, I think, you know, mindfulness and using your time with intention is a is a good thing, broadly speaking. But just listen. This is just the morning portion, okay? Oh, goody. So, uh, hundreds of years later, we get to know how this guy organized his day. Roman numeral one. To lift up the heart to God in thankfulness for renewing my life. Roman numeral two. To renew my covenant with God in Christ. One. By renewed acts of faith, receiving Christ and rejoicing in the height of that relation. Two, resolution of being one of his people, doing him allegiance. Roman numeral three, adoration and prayer. Roman numeral four, setting a watch over my own infirmities and passions, over the snares laid our way. And then there's a Latin phrase, it's something like perimus licitis or something. And, and this that, is his day planner? This is his day planner, and that's just the morning. And so literally the last little phrase, that little Latin bit, it just basically means death for a good cause. So literally by the time you've had breakfast, you should be thinking about dying well in the name of the Lord. Uh, so How if I just want to drink coffee, dude? <laughs> he, 
he goes on to make sure his day job is in alignment with God's will and that he maintains his prayer and spiritual connection throughout the day. That he should only enjoy meat and drink in moderation. You already know that he already doesn't drink alcohol. So when he says that, he's literally meaning like, just he's don't like eat water. or drink. Don't don't eat or drink too much. You know, just just what you need. Um, he had a rule of no games. Quote: If given to covetousness or passion. Unquote. In other words, nothing any fun. Okay, so fun's illegal. <laughs> fun is just off the menu. And he had reminders for himself if he was alone. Quote. Roman numeral one, be aware of wandering and vainful, lustful thoughts. Fly from thyself rather than entertain these. Don't touch thyself. Do touch not thine dick. <laughs> Two, let thy solitary thoughts be profitable. View the evidences of thy salvation, the state of thy soul, the coming of Christ, thy own mortality. It will make thee humble and watchful, unquote. Yeah, just don't touch your dick. Yeah, don't, touch your dick don't, your, don't touch your dick. Don't touch your dick. Don't think about boobs. Um, if having company over, he orders himself once again in this little plan to use God's name reverently and to always leave a good example, and to receive good from them, if more knowing. And he finally ends the evening by reviewing his accomplishments and begging forgiveness from the Lord if he fell short, and resolved to do better under the mercy of the Lord our God, etc., etc., etc. Would you ever invite this guy to a party? God no, I don't. I don't think you, you should let that guy out of the house. <laughs> he seems dangerous. That's yeah, like it's a little unhinged, but you know, so much so. So because of all this hard work, this and, made me think feelings. I must make it stop. Because of all this hard work and faithful living, Matt got the attention of William Noy, who was the Attorney General of England at the time. Apparently, our hero was so up this guy's ass that Matt gained the nickname Young Noi. Just for the record, I absolutely refuse to accept the word hero. <laughs> just, just letting you know now. Every time you say it, I'm in silent protest. I'm trying protest. to get you on Matthew Hale's side. No. Here. All right. Fuck that guy. <laughs> so, uh, so he's now Young Noi, the little, the little kiss ass with the Attorney General. Um, though Hale would go on to surpass even this latest mentor. But he had a hilarious problem that created a temporary speed bump in his career. So you might have already noticed this pattern we talked about, about how he like just makes a decision that something was a sin or he was doing something wrong and then he just goes hard in the opposite direction. Always. Like I'm yeah. never going to see a play again. You're never going to drink, gonna drink again. again. So I'm never going to touch a boob again so, until the next time I touch a boob. Right. Or at least <laughs> think about a boob or an ankle or whatever. So... You know, he, no, he's not drinking, he's not going to plays anymore, and for a while, you know, he dressed in fancy clothes, and then he made the decision, no, that's not the Puritan way, you're supposed to be simple and humble and all that. You're supposed to suck. So he looked like a fucking slob for the next few years. So much so that when a press gang was rounding up a peasant conscripts for his majesty's army, Matt got swept up with the rest, with all the peasants. And he was almost sent off to war for the second time, which would this time be fighting for the Catholic king. Gross. No, that's hilarious, though. It's like he literally almost got forced to fight for the army he wanted to fight against before just because he was a fucking slob. He looked like <laughs> shit. He looked like Pigpen from the Peanuts cartoons. <laughs> like flies following around and that's kicking so up weird. dust everywhere he went. 
But finally, <laughs> someone recognized him as a lawyer working for the attorney general and they let him go. So Matt decided maybe I should clean myself up a little bit. You know, nothing too, no, not to go back to full fancy pants, but just, At least just look middle at- of the road. Just to be a simple professional. And that's kind of the way he set himself up. So that wouldn't happen to him again. So at least he didn't like look like ass. Yeah, you can't look like a bum, dude. Yeah. So we are told that young Hale was purchasing cloth from a draper. So that's where you'd purchase the whole like bolts of cloth. And then the uh, tailor would, the, or a cutter would then cut the suits. did they have would, cloth? Would, that yeah. wasn't that a thing. Yeah. So, so Hale was purchasing cloth um, for, to get suits and stuff made. Um, and the dude offered to give Hale the cloth now at no cost. If you'd promise to give him a hundred pounds when Matt became Lord Chief Justice, the highest office in the land. But Matt refused a deal he felt was not honest. And of course, later, this guy got to curse under his breath when, in fact, Matt absolutely did become Lord Chief Justice. In the meantime, he did nothing but study and pray and be a complete tight ass. Good times. He, he remained at the hall and continued to study even during official vacation. So this is like at Hogwarts when all the other kids went home for Christmas. He's... He's Hermione. He's the one he's there. Stay, yeah, staying there and working and studying when just everybody for else is having fun. He's just got no life, no interest. Because you might you might touch your dick if you ever <laughs> stop for even just a second. He organized collections of books he read with extensive notes, compiling them into kind of a Cliff Notes or Hales Notes version that ended up getting j- borrowed by a judge of the King's Bench. He was really impressed. He was like, "Wow, this this nerd really made a a nice little reference guide for some of this law." Now, Matt had not yet passed the bar, but he'd already written a legal work recommended by a royally appointed judge. So this guy has just got nerd ass kissing down to a science and he's like, you know, in his early 20s. Chris. Constantly on the lookout for older, successful mentors, Matt found an expert in legal history in a guy named John Selden, who introduced him to a wider knowledge and a study of the legal system in ancient Rome, which our boy liked very, very much. And he regretted that Roman law wasn't much studied in his country. He and Selden became so close that Matt was named one of the four executors of his estate. And Matt apparently went into, sorry, and Matt apparently went on to become well-versed in other subjects, including arithmetic, algebra, philosophy, physics, anatomy, surgery, ancient history, and chronology. All that sounds like so much fun. But you know what's more fun? What? Ads! Oh, shit. We're going to go to ads? Ads. These are ads. They are our love bugs and companions. They are our pets, our family, and they make life better. When we face unexpected challenges, so do our pets. That's why we're on a mission to support people and their pets. Whether donating a bag of kibble, sharing an Instagram post of a lost cat, or welcoming a foster pet into your home, every bit of kindness counts. Visit PetsAndPeopleTogether.org to learn how to be a helper in your community. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. And we're back. We're back. And uh, Matt is being a complete dork. He's been a complete dork this whole time. Yeah. Well, now he studied Jewish law in the Old Testament, despite being absolutely lousy at the languages they were written in, and making the study of divinity chief to all others. He got up early in the morning and was never idle. After dining, he would read or study, not wanting to waste a single moment with simple pleasure or relaxation. I mean, it's the most Puritan thing ever. You just got to work and pray and work and pray and never touch your dick. never touch your dick. Never touch your dick and then until you die one day. So remember how earlier Matt was ready to die to sit a Protestant king on the throne? Well, when the English Civil War broke out, 
our boy here decided to keep his head down and shut the fuck up. Uh, he refused any public involvement or to even talk about the news with anybody. He was like, rrr, 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 we don't talk. <laughs> he made sure he was generous to people having a hard time, and he was quietly working for people in the current king's employees. So it's like, still taking some of that Catholic king money. And he just grumbles right. about it. Now, Matt rode things out this way until Oliver Cromwell was in charge. Uh, and he wanted to appoint our hero to the bench. And Matt kind of hemmed and hawed, like, eh, but ultimately accepted the appointment being careful to never recognize the authority of the usurper. Now, at 43 years old, Judge Hale oversaw a murder trial of a townsman who died in a fight after the guy refused to give up his gun to the soldier stationed nearby. So, basically, like, this soldier is walking through town, sees a local with a gun, and demands it. They get into a fight, and the soldier kills the local. Matt ignored the defense of the commander of the garrison and had the soldier executed quickly so that the strings couldn't be pulled for this guy. He's like, no, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. You're dead now. You're kicking on the end of a rope, buddy. Yeah, I guess you shouldn't have done that. No, he believed in swift justice. And uh, it's actually one of his legal precepts. I may even get into it later, but it's basically the idea that he felt like crimes of blood needed to be resolved quickly and like with swift, harsh punishments. but, But crimes of words or property could be more reason, you know, and that's actually, you know, not. Yeah, except for I don't believe in capital Yeah, I don't believe punish. in capital punishment either, but, you know, in this case, under this world, that seemed like the best thing to do was fuck that guy. I guess. Um, later on the judicial circuit, Matt got pissed when a local sheriff abused his authority to fuck with the jury of an important trial. So this guy's, this sheriff's doing a little jury tampering. Matt finds out about it, and he's like, I refuse to try this case at all. Cromwell was pissed when he found out about this, and said that Hale was not fit to be a judge. Matt was quoted as saying, that is very true. <laughs> See, as a devout royalist, Hale tried to split his hairs to do his job, but he ultimately felt he could not, he could not have ex- someone executed by the, the state without the authority of a true king. So, because in his mind, all the authority came from the king, and the king's authority came from God. So mm-hmm. you can't, like... You and this can't, is a false you can't king. Kill somebody. This is just... This, this is a just, false guy. This is just some dude sitting on the throne. God did not divinely appoint Cromwell to be sitting on the throne. So this made a number of very important people unhappy with him. But Matt just kept on plodding along and practicing law without taking hard sides. He didn't want to get himself in trouble. He wanted to make money from... And money came from whoever was sitting there, you know, on the... you know, on, the In the throne. big chair. Yeah. So in the middle... And so now he's middle-aged... And Matt was chosen for Parliament during a time when there were no there was no House of Lords. So he's going to ha- the House of Commons, and there were two primary parties struggling for dominance at the time. So the, the one was called the Enthusiasts, and these are the people who want to just tear down the existing system of England and set up the Kingdom of Christ. The other was the Pro Cromwell Party, and these are usually like the the merchant class. These people like this disruption of the old society is a really great way for all of us to get rich and powerful. Matthew took neither side, but instead decided to kind of mitigate the damage of the most extreme members of both sides. He's like, let's just keep this thing together until a king gets back. (laughs) Let's not fuck everything up. Um, So apparently one of the things he fought against, there was a plan. There's like, hey, let's just go to the tower, into the Tower of London and burn all of the records. (laughs) Let's just like wipe the slate clean. Uh, Let's just, let's just, we don't, there's a lot of ugly stuff in English history and let's just burn it all. Uh, and and Matt was saying, uh, that's a terrible idea. How yeah, we... you can't just erase history. Yeah, he's like, how dude. about we don't do that? And it's like, for all of his faults, Matthew's very devoted to history and precedent and the things that came before. So he continued to administer justice under Cromwell, but when the guy finally died, 
Matt refused to publicly mourn the protector of England. So, like, they sent him, like, official mourning robes, and he here's, like, here's the instructions of what you're supposed to do to probably mourn the protector. Yeah. It's like, nope, fuck that. He didn't want to do it. Nor did he accept a commission from Cromwell's son, Richard, because instead he's like, wait the fuck a second. Cromwell was already just sitting there, and now you're saying he's there's His, an inherited he, throne? He's not royalty. That's not how this works, according That's, to like, that's false nepotism. <laughs> yeah. That's very different from these made-up families, little trees that are royal, you know, divinely appointed. Um, he instead lived as a private citizen. During at this time, the army removed Richard Cromwell from power until Matt's wishes were granted when Charles II was called back from exile and proclaimed the lawful monarch. Finally, our boy had the Protestant king he'd always hoped to serve. So in short order, Matt was elected back to Parliament. And according to the biography, he wasn't even running. Like, he's just, all of his neighbors yeah, said he was so is. awesome that they appointed him. He and was he, amazing. And very quickly, Charles uh, made appointed him Knight of the Shire from the county, the county of Gloucestershire. That all sounds very hobbitish. So he's officially Sir Matthew Hale at this point. Now he's in mid-40s. And he used this position to help craft and pass the Act of Indemnity, which essentially pardoned and forgave all the Cromwell supporters so that the Reconstruction period following the English Civil War would be productive and not focused on vengeance. So he's like, let's not just get there. Let's not, you know, tear into each other and have it all about prosecuting all of the people who supported the usurper. Let's just move on as a nation. Let's heal. Um, Matt was made Lord Chief Baron and served for 11 years and gained a solid reputation for justice and exactness in his trials. Now put a pin in that in your brain because this period where he's Lord Chief Baron for 11 years is where a trial we're going to cover in the second episode takes place. Oh, goody. Before we get there, let's we're just going to go through his general biography before we move on to specific areas of law he, he ruled on. So, you might remember a thing that happened in London in 1666, you know, when somebody, like, knocked over a lantern or put out a cigar in the wrong file in 13,000 homes, 87 churches, the Royal Exchange, and a bunch of other buildings burned to the damn ground. The Great Fire of London. Um, so, Matt was one of the main judges who resolved disputes between tenants and landlords in the aftermath of that nightmare. And he also laid down important rules for the rebuilding process for the years that followed. So, like... Here is how you resolve these disputes between a tenant and a landlord. And he, and he also used his skills in both math, math and architecture to literally define, like, you know, I have no idea exactly how, but he wrote down all these rules to help people make these determinations in a consistent way. Because that's, that's kind of like his life's goal, was to make the law consistent. Because a lot of it, common law, was just sort of like, oh, that's just what we know it is. He's one of these guys who's like, no, we got to no, write, this, write shit this shit down. down. And so important. that everybody rules are the same, so these precedents are real. And that's one of the reasons why he's so revered in legal circles, is he's like the pioneer of writing shit down. Which is fine. And standardizing it. That part's fine. It's fine. So He's Matt, still lame. Yeah. But it's fine. It's fine, even though it's not fine that his shit has anything to do with our lives now. But the idea of writing out the law seems to make sense to me. So Matthew wrote out personal rules for how he'd rule for how he'd rule as a judge, much as he wrote out the rules for how he'd spend his day. Because he's big on like writing his own schedule and rules for himself. An emphasis on receiving strength and direction from God, not to be swayed by pity for the poor or show favoritism to the rich. He wrote that matters of blood should be dealt with severely, but show moderation in matters of mere words, like I mentioned before. So that he should refuse private solicitations and make sure his servants never interfere in business or take money. More on that in the story later. Mm -hmm. And also that he should take only short meals and not eat too much when attending to business. Okay. 
As he settled into later life, Matt became increasingly uncompromising. Yeah, as opposed to how, how chill yeah. he was before. <laughs> oh, Lord. So in one case, a gentleman sent the gift of a freshly killed buck for his dinner table. But when our Lord Chief Baron found out who this guy was who sent him this deer, and it was about it was from a related to a case he was going to be trying, he refused to try the case until he paid for the venison. He's like, no, I do not accept gifts yeah, and bribes. Yeah, this is a this Good is a bribe. day, sir. I, what, what, what kind of judge do you think I am? This is a meat bribe. <laughs> and so literally the guy's like, no, 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 no I, I only give away the stuff from my... My forest. I do not sell it. Oh, I am a gentleman. And they fought over it, but finally, but Matt's like, no, fuck you. I'm not trying your case until I paid you fair market price for this venison because we already ate it and it was excellent. Um, he once refused to sign the certificate of a dude who'd been fired for some offense and instead gave the guy a sack of money and sent him on his way without the pink slip. Okay. That seems not pretty cool. That's, that's nice. Uh, he tried to follow his father's example, and he was generous to the less fortunate. He was making donations to the poor and all that. And all that's fine. Yep. And Matt became obsessed over religious disputes within Protestant sects and wished there were more laws that could let him publish offenders, a.k.a. Catholics. Gross. He publicly declared for the Church of England. Of course he did. So, and as obsessed as he was for his entire life, he spent a great deal of his energy writing essays and poems about religious subjects. Arguing against atheism and impiety, working for seven years before sending this big volume to the Bishop of Chester. It's like a bunch of religious nonsense that tries to try to try to um, be science and philosophy. Uh, it describes the Great Flood and speculates what the antediluvian world may have been like. And then, on May 18th, 1671, when our hero... Eh. <laughs> survey says, nah. He was 61 years old. Sir Matthew Hale was promoted to Lord Chief Justice of England immediately after the last one croaked. So this is like the highest appointment, the highest royally appointed judge position in the land. It's like the Attorney General of the King. Um, okay, so it's a big deal. Big deal, because in his early 60s. So his final years of service were lauded by the court and the people. And it was during this time he wrote his great work, Historia Placetorum Conori. That's the pretentious Latin, or the history of the pleas of the crown in our shared native language. This is the text that would be referred to and cited by lawyers and judges for the next 350 years, even in completely different countries, like ours. And also, recently, India made some awful rulings on their highest court related to women's rights. Of course they did. Citing this boy, Matthew Hale. Oh my goodness. So, Do we know where he's buried? I'd like to spit on him. Yeah. <laughs> We, we can go. Okay. <laughs> can we take a chainsaw street trip to spit on the grave of this asshole? So, several years into his appointment, Matt's health took a sharp turn for the worse. Good. Swelling in his abdomen and shortness of breath. Good. He decided he was done, <laughs> and he fought to quit despite the objections from his local town and the king. But eventually, his resignation was accepted. By the time he officially retired, Matt had to be carried around by servants. He was unable to walk. He could barely breathe. And he seemed to regret that he'd worked so hard, he didn't set aside any time to, to rest and reflect at the end of his life. He died not long into retirement. The official cause was named Dropsy. Which, you know, basically... That was, that was Dropsy old, old, dead. <laughs> Dropsy was like old-timey for edema, just like swelling of the tissues. So like, yeah, for... I. My wife, who works in so did care. he did he die slowly and painfully? Yeah, it was bad, not great. Good. He died choking, oh, choking on his own fluids. Good. 
Um, I hope some of it was ambiotic. <laughs> after his death, he left us a letter. Now, it's boring, so I'm not going to read it to you, but here's the bullet point version of what he had to say. He considers his profession as a lawyer and judge and a duty bound by providence of Almighty God, and that such work is important for civil society. But he also declares it a huge time sink and pain in the ass, and in fact was the least beneficial to himself above all others. Reflecting back, he thinks it's that such position should only be served for a short period of time in the prime of life to save the rest for religious observation, reflection, and prayer. Yeah, take that, Alito, you fucking old bastard. Thinking on the biblical story of Martha and Mary, he feels Mary chose the better part by focusing on only one necessary thing instead of taking on many challenges. So in other words, as he lay dying, Sir Matthew Hale wishes he'd spent less time working and more time praying. He was in a, like the religious tight ass until he died choking on his own lungs. Oh, well, I like the fact that he, you know, was choking on his own lungs part. Yeah. That's, that's my favorite part of the story so far. Fuck this guy. So his sycophantic biographer. And that, you want to say that he's complicated. No, I don't think he's complicated. I just think he sucks. Fair enough. Donate to the poor. That's the very least you could do, you fucking yeah, he may, And he may seem to make some fair rulings and was generous in some ways. Like, like I said, you know, every and time... And again, I, I guess for a 300-year-old dead asshole, it's fine. Like, if you graded him on the curve, he seemed okay for his day. We just still shouldn't, but be, we listening shouldn't be listening to the him. fucking shit he has to say 300 years later, because fuck you. Yeah. So his sycophantic biographer, so the guy who wrote the biography I've been reading from this whole time, his name was Gilbert Burnett. He could only regret... That, that Hale's strict modesty prevented Burnett from placing this following inscription on Matt's tombstone. This is what he wanted to write but wasn't allowed to. That he was one of the greatest patterns this age has afforded, whether in his private deportment as a Christian or in his public employments, either at the bar or on the bench. Unquote. <clears throat> he was great! <laughs> so, we talked about his life. Um... And now that we know a bit about who this guy was, um, you might imagine that his uh, that his legal opinions regarding rape weren't um, great. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. So, Especially if you were married, because then you're just property anyway. Yeah, so this is... So, so once again, we're going to go ahead. We're going to now... Now we've done his biography. You need to get a sense of who this guy was. We're going to talk about his legal... All the major areas of how his legal opinions related to women have affected us to this very day. Starting with... Sexual assault and rape. I wish I could say his opinions only affected women back in his day in his own country. But to start with the basics, uh, let's start. Okay, so in his great work, the one we talked about, Historia Placitorum Canorae, Hale defines the crime of rape under the English common law thusly. Quote, rape is the carnal knowledge of any woman above the age of 10 years against her will and of a woman child under the age of 10 years with or against her will. Unquote. So what did you pick out of that little paragraph right there? Well, I mean, you're not supposed to take women against their will, and you're especially not allowed to touch the children. Yeah, but he defined the age of consent yeah, as, as 10, 10 years old. Which is ridiculous. I mean, even for even for then, it sounds a little young. It's... Now, to his credit, if, you're gonna, if you are going to give him any, later in this same book, he goes on to define the age of consent as 12, not 10, and recommends that, that the law, the wording of the law be change to be automatically rape if the girl is 11 or under so that's you know an improvement um yeah. no 
No, uh, that, that's not how any of this works. He goes on uh, to some detail about the, the legal difference between rape or buggery, which means penetration versus carnal knowledge, which is other kinds of sexual yeah. assault that doesn't involve penetration. He talks about different situations in which rape can be prosecuted and then drops this little doozy. Quote, but the husband cannot be guilty of a rape committed by himself upon his lawful wife. Mm -hmm. For by their mutual matrimonial consent and contract, the wife hath given up herself in this kind unto her husband, which she cannot retract. Unquote. Yeah, and now granted, she wasn't even allowed to pick her own husband. You yeah. know, her parents did that for her. Yeah. Ninety percent of the time, so that's very, how that works. Very clearly stated. Very a wife clearly properly raped by a husband. Yeah, unfortunately, those views were pretty much in line with the standard beliefs of the time. So it wasn't like this was this was once again this was him reflecting common law that was already out there. Um, and to be fair, he does say that it's not, that um, does not write that it's okay for a husband to quote prostitute her to a rape unquote. And if a dude were to try that shit, the husband would also be guilty of the crime and end up dangling from Hale's rope. Because for you know all for the all of the awful things about this, he also believed that a rape was a serious crime that should be punishable by death. Um, he also says the law does not make a forced or coerced marriage a legitimate rape. So he's so he's saying that such a marriage can be dissolved by a declaratory sentence in a Christian court that would void the marriage and make the man eligible for prosecution as if the marriage had never been. So in other words, he's saying like if a woman's like abducted or threatened in some way and forced into this situation. Yeah, then the guy rapes her and he's like, well, no, that's my wife. So mm -hmm. that's not a thing. They're like, no, 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 the marriage was not, we're going to annul your marriage and then you're going to hang. Now, uh, so that, let's see, of course, that kind of forced marriage was like the extreme kind, has nothing to do with the usual kind of a father uh, essentially selling his daughter off his property and yeah. her having no choice in who she and, married. And that's, you know, that's perfectly legal. Yeah. That was normal. That's legit. He was talking about like an actual because there was yeah, a, there was abductions. An, there was an, a legitimate case that was cited in the book where um, some important woman had gotten abducted, forced to marry, raped by her abductor, and then there was a literal act of parliament to undo the marriage um, in order so that then that guy could be executed for this crime. And so Hale made the point: he's like, you don't even have to do an act of parliament. We can just just mm -hmm. literally any any Christian court can annul a marriage in these, those circumstances. But once again. If you're married, you know, if you're normally married, a husband can violently rape his wife and that's just fine. That's fine. Yeah, I understand. I don't like it, but I yeah. understand. So in another section, Hale describes a scenario in which a wife voluntarily steals her husband's stuff and runs off with another man. Uh, he explains that there is no felony from either party here. However, there is the issue of the property stolen. Quote, but without question, if the wife were actually ravished and the goods taken... This action lies for the husband, and he shall recover damages for the rape, as well as the goods, that the wife were dead or divorced after the rape. Unquote. So in other words, this was a property crime, and the wife was part of the stolen goods, goods. that were messed with. Oh, you, you touched my stuff, you, you violated my stuff, <laughs> and part of that stuff would be Mrs. Yes. So-and-so. <laughs> it's great. Oh, yeah. You know what else is great? Ads. Great. Advertisements? You mean like ads. these ones we're about to listen to now? Yep. These ads. When you hear your husband praise the beauty of another woman's complexion, doesn't it sometimes make you wonder what he thinks of your skin? If you've been even slightly careless, let your skin become drab-looking. Perhaps you have good reason to wonder. But listen closely. 
For I want to tell you of a remarkable method of daily skin care that thousands of women are using with wonderful results. This way is based on two unique and utterly delightful face creams. Philips Milk and Magnesia Cleansing Cream and Philips Milk and Magnesia Skin Cream. These are the only face creams made from genuine Philips Milk and Magnesia. And here's how you use these special creams. First, apply the cleansing cream to your face. It liquefies instantly, floats away surface dirt, leaves your skin softer, cleaner, smoother. And then, as an exquisitely dainty and delicate powder base, use Philips Milk and Magnesia Skin Cream. It helps neutralize any excess fatty acid accumulations in the outer pore opening. Removes oily shine due to excess accumulated oil on the skin. Softens dry roughness and even seems to smooth away those tiny lines. The fact is, thousands of women use Philips Skin Cream as a night cream so that it can have its full neutralizing and softening effect. You can get Philips Milk and Magnesia Skin Cream and Philips Milk and Magnesia Cleansing Cream at any drugstore or cosmetic counter. They come in 10 and 60 cent jars. Start using these delightful and effective beauty creams today. Okay, we're back. Oh boy, we're having fun talking about rape and sexual assault and Sir Matthew Hale. Oh yeah, all of this sucks. All right, so here's an interesting point. I'm having point. so much fun now. Here's another, I'm going to throw another name at you that might ring a bell, but I won't be surprised if you don't instantly recognize it. Uh, it's The name is Todd Aiken. It's... It's okay. So it's not surprising. He is a. He was. He's dead now. Uh, he was a former Hooray! former member of the House of Representatives from the great state of Missouri. Back in 2012, he made some headlines uh, because he was a super pro life dude, and he wanted. He was voicing his uh, his uh, opposition to abortion, even in the most extreme cases. For example, rape victims, mm-hmm. cases of rape and incest. Aiken was quoted as saying, "Quote." If it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to try and shut that whole thing down, unquote. Remember that one now? That uh, whole legitimate rape quote? Uh, <laughs> so in other words, he, he's oh saying, God. he's saying, this aching is saying if, the, if it's pregnant, it wasn't a rape if, if the woman got pregnant because because that's apparently how biology works. Oh yeah, because we can just force a baby away. Well, guess what? Matthew Hale disagrees with, with Aiken. Well, that's, that's nice, at least. He uses a Latin phrase I'm not even going to try to pronounce, but it mm-hmm. translates into, quote, for a woman can become pregnant even if she has been oppressed with force, unquote, because, duh, of yeah. course, that's how human that's biology how, works. That's how fucking sperm works, yeah. yo. God, I and mean, it's like, it's, it's worse, it's terrible when the, the 350-year-old terrible person has a more reasonable thing than the, I mean, the dude from Missouri 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I mean... But Todd Aiken, we can at least say this about him. He's dead. Yay. So when discussing the trial of rape cases, Hale instructs that the victim be allowed to give testimony and be considered a competent witness. But the jury must decide how credible she is based on the circumstances. He then gives an example. First example is a woman of good reputation who immediately reports the crime and shows physical signs of injury. And then compares her to a woman who did not immediately scream rape, does not appear to be injured, doesn't seem like anything was wrong, came up later, she should probably be disbelieved. 
Yeah, because we always love to come forward. And, you know, and women, we're so... And the, there's only We're one, dealt with so fairly. Well, it's there's great. only one version of rape, and that is some guy jumping up with a knife yes. and beating you up and violently assaulting you. There's not threats. There's not coercion. There's not while you're asleep or, or you know, under the influence. None of those things are a thing. There's only one way. And, you know, and you, and you being afraid or ashamed or unsure or, or whatever your reasons are... If you don't immediately do the right things, then no one should believe you, right? According to Hale. Yeah, that sucks. Uh, obviously, I don't believe any of the things I just said. Um, so, he might as well have written, quote, well, this is not a real quote. He might as well have written, and find out what the harlot was wearing and judge her thusly. I mean, that's just sort of like the gross, it, you know, yeah, judging the victim instead of uh, the, the, the case. The case and the criminal who committed the crime. So, he described one case in which a 63-year-old man with health problems was accused of raping a 14-year-old girl. Judge Hale instructed the jury to consider that the man's ancient years would make it impossible for him to insult a young girl. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, because that's how biology works, too. Yeah. This is the section of the book that contains one of Hale's most infamous quotes. Quote, It is true that rape is most detestable crime. And therefore, it ought to be severely and impartially punished with death. But it must be remembered that it is an accusation easily made and hard to be proved and harder to be defended against for the party accused, though never so innocent. Unquote. So it's in other words, it's easy to throw out an accusation. Any woman can just throw out a rape accusation whenever she wants and, 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 literally, and we say ruin a guy's life, like in this case, literally mm -hmm. end with him dead. <laughs> so he's saying that because of this, and it, because it stirs up people's passions it, that you should always lean against just instantly believing a woman just because she said this happens. There needs to be other... other uh, gross. Yeah. And this is before there's any kind of real physical evidence yeah. other than, it like, It just bruising. literally has to be bruising and, and, like, you know, they would let, like, these midwives, like, check the woman out physically and stuff like that. And here's the ugly part where we see how these views trickle down into modern American life. One example... Marital rape was not outlawed in all 50 states until July 5th, 1993. And that does not surprise me at all. It's gross, but it doesn't Literally surprise me. right after I graduated high school. When it, that was the last state, I forget which one that was the last holdout. It's probably like Mississippi because they suck. Louisiana. <laughs> all right. And here's. It has a, to be Southern. Here's a doozy. In the Fordham Urban Law Journal, Volume 4, 4, Number 2, Article 10, from 1976, the title, and it's a long one, this is a law journal, Criminal Law, Rape, Cautionary Instruction in Sex Offense Trial Relating Prosecutrix Credibility to the Nature of the Crime Charged is No Longer Mandatory, Discretionary Use is Disapproved. That was the title. It discusses the appeal of a convicted rapist in the state of California. So what were the grounds of this man's appeal? So he's already convicted. He's trying to get it overturned. And you always have to have a legal reasoning for why the, the original Yeah, it's very hard. It's harder to get a case overturned than it yeah. is anything else. So the grounds he was filing for appeal under were this. Quote, the defendant appealed alleging error by the trial judge for failing to give the mandatory cautionary instruction that a charge such as this made against the defendant in this case is one which is easily made and once made difficult to defend against even if the person accused is innocent. Therefore, the law requires that you examine the testimony of the female person named in the information with caution. Unquote. Does that sound slightly familiar? That's practically <sighs> quoting Hale. 
from 350 yeah. years before. The document goes on, quote, The origin of the cautionary instruction for rape and other sex offenses is attributed to the 17th century writings of Sir Matthew Hale, unquote. So this was standard practice in our country to instruct juries to warn against the credibility of victim testimony in a rape case until very recently. This was literally called the Hale Rule. I, I, okay. Now I'm happy to say, the good news, at least with this citation, is this was the case where the California Supreme Court upheld the conviction and rejected the mandatory use of the Hale Rule and literally said, no longer mandatory, in fact, not recommended at all. But the Fordham Journal reminds us that once upon a time, Lord Hale wrote the following. Once again, from his original big book, Matthew writes, quote, I only mention these instances that we may be the more cautious upon trials of offenses of this nature, wherein the court and jury may with so much ease be imposed upon with great care and vigilance, the heinousness of the offense many times transporting the judge and jury with so much indignation that they are over hastily carried to the conviction of the person accused thereof, and by the confident testimony of sometimes malicious and false witnesses." Unquote. In other words, bitches be lying. Oh, God. The bitches be lying president. And that's it for part one of our look into Sir Matthew Hale. Religious tight ass who should have zero bearing on the rights of anyone in the 21st fucking century. Especially in a different country. With different rules, with different laws, with different... Just everything, literally everything. Everything. And from a, from a literal... You guys didn't even know about germ theory. Fuck you. It said a state religion and a king, and that was where all the legal authority derived from, but we're supposed to care. But this guy says, uh, so anyway, we'll be back next week to look at how his horrible opinions affected women for hundreds of years in a couple of other areas. We'll talk about how he helped get a bunch of women killed over here in the colonies 16 years after he died. Yay. And we'll talk about how a certain Supreme Court justice is a real life lying piece of shit. Oh, well, I could have already told you that. But, but... for now, <laughs> thank you if you're listening to our words and made it all the way to the end of this shit show. We appreciate you and thank you for uh, for checking us out. For two years, we have defended a forest in South Atlanta from those intent on destroying it. This is the Wilauni Forest. Those who want to destroy it intend to build a $90 million police training facility, Cop City, with roads to practice high-speed chases and a mock city to practice raids, explosive testing, crowd control, and other tactics of urban warfare. In response, we have protested, petitioned, put our bodies on the line, and put pressure on Cop City construction companies and funders. The climate crisis is already here. All across the world, people are fighting back against the destruction of their land, water, and local ecosystems. The police trained in Cop City will be used to brutally suppress the movements we need to wage these battles now and in the years to come. The struggle for life on Earth and the struggle to prevent the expansion of the police state are one and the same. This is not just a local struggle. With media attention on the rise, city officials are scrambling to control the narrative. These individuals meant harm to people and to property. This is a very small group of individuals. Many of them don't even live in Atlanta or in the state of Georgia. They have fabricated domestic terrorism charges 
and they have done this precisely because the movement is strong. The police murder of Tortuguita and the ensuing cover-up could have chilled the movement, but instead it has only grown and spread. Together we will stand up for the forest, for the trees and the animals that live in it, and for each other. Wherever you are, we need you here. Come camp with us from March 4th through 11th for a week of action in the Willowney Forest. Top City will never be built. Willowney Forest is, and will always remain, a public park.